Hey folks, this is Jeremy Hammond, and you're listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Time to get embarrassed with us. Because it's just you. This is Alon, and welcome to Lost and Rewound. I am once again Sans Jimmy, but Face Girl's here. Oh, she's back! She's coming back. You can't back get enough. Again. You can't get enough. Face Girl's back. <laughs> Tell a friend. <laughs> Catherine down here in the studio. I yo, you keep coming back. What are you doing? You're like I just hang out here, man, and like you're always like, "Hey, where's my co-host?" I'm like, "I sabotaged him again." You sabotaging Jimmy? Yeah. Why is it like? Are you and Jimmy like Batman and Joker? Exactly. (laughs) Interchangeable. Exactly. Interchangeable, like Batman and Joker. Yeah, that's a twist. (laughs) M Night Shyamalan does Batman. It's so funny. I on the way here, I was um, grabbing a nosh, and the cafe I was at. They were talking about M. Night Shyamalan. So I actually just had a conversation about how I haven't seen an M. Night Shyamalan movie since um, Signs. Because Mm. after that movie, I basically gave up on (laughs) thinking that I could even get through any of those movies ever again without just being frustrated beyond belief. Really? Were they frustrating? Signs was pretty frustrating. See, I saw Sixth Sense. Yes. Uh, I saw that. That's it. That's it? That's all I saw. You're better than I am. So as far as I know, he he does good work. <laughs> Did he jump the shark at some point? Is it all just shark jump after that? I don't know if I'm really at, at liberty to go into detail since uh, there are so many films that he's come out with <laughs> that may or may not be good, but uh, I don't really get around to seeing so many films as much as I as one would hope to. So um, I'm just going to say Last Airbender and go from there. And he, he did that? Yeah, it was not. Okay, I know the happening also was terrible, right? I was that the one with the, the trees. Yeah, the trees. Yeah, I worked on that. That's why I know it exists. You did? Yeah. Were you, you were doing cent- background? Yeah, I was doing background. I was in Central Park, and they were like, "All right, like they were they weren't they were trying not to tell us anything, but we had to be like scared of the trees or okay. something." Yeah, I don't know. That's, so that's that's good method work right there. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything that was going on. <laughs> that was that was my my character. The oblivious tourist. Before we begin, oh, we that's actually a really good. I'm gonna you, you should put that on your resume. The oblivious tourist. I was on there. It's on there, uncredited Amazing. in several works. We're here uh, every in- week on Radio Free Brooklyn at 3 p.m. Eastern, and um, there's so much great programming that Radio Free Brooklyn has. You want to contribute monies to the station to to the community, I should say, because it's more of a community and a non-profit organization now, officially, as of... Tax-deductible. Uh, what? So, please, your contributions mean a lot to us. $1, $2, $3, 4 or a $10 Hamilton, an Alexander Hamilton, anything will make a difference to keep us going with financial stability. And you can go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash pledge to do so. Uh, additionally, if you like what you're hearing on our show specifically, watch as I hold my invisible uh, blazer <laughs> with some kind of importance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it's uh, RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash LAR, and you could be a sponsor for the show. Or uh, ass. 
Or ass, or, yes. Or ass, if yes. you want to sponsor my show. If you're like listening to this episode and you're like, you know, the best thing I've ever heard on this episode is something that has nothing to do with it, but something that has to do with another show entirely. Exactly. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Your kidding. show is is fantastic and the quintessential uh, free form, if you want to call it that, criteria for how to do a radio show. Just fearless. You and Faceboy are fearless. We were really tame on the episode we did for you. Uh-huh. And we were like, we were laughing that you were like, it was such a filthy episode. And we're like, we were so well no, behaved. No, it was pretty filthy. We thought we were being clean. Well, let's see what dirt we can uncover <laughs> on this episode. Let's begin. in New York and hailing from Woodstock, New York. He serves as founding partner of Sundial Pictures, responsible for producing critical acclaimed films such as Obvious Child and documentaries Jiro Dreams of Sushi and The Seventh Fire. He also served as an executive producer for the award-winning feature-length film Pariah. And if that wasn't enough, his documentary Searching for Tupac brought him all the way to Cuba. We rode the bus together in grade school, and he agreed to appear on our show. Welcome, Joey Carey. Here I am. Happy to be here. Rock you like a hurricane, brother. How have you been? Been good. It's been a while. I know. Joey, uh, you and your sister Lila were on my bus growing up in Woodstock, New York, and you've been living in the city now for how long? Since, let's see, 2007? Mm-hmm. 2007. And you were working in film even before you moved here? Yeah, I had studied film in college and made some documentaries, and my dad is a documentary filmmaker, so I sort of grew up helping him a lot, and uh, studied in Cuba, as you referenced, made this short film, Searching for Tupac, went on and made a uh, another documentary called Greasy Rider with a fellow Woodstock friend of mine named J.J. Beck, where we drove around the country in a car that we converted to run on vegetable oil, and uh, talked about biofuels and the... Oh, I totally saw you in the news then. I feel like I totally saw that in the news. I'm like, these people are incredible. That person's amazing. And I've wanted to do that ever since I saw, most likely you, in the news. That was years ago. You would have been on years something, ago. right? 2008 is when I think it came out. There's a bunch of people who do it. So okay. we made so it a might film, not be you. but there are, a lot, there are different <laughs> companies that make uh, all the pieces you need to change your car over. You traveled all the way across the country on vegetable oil. Most of the time. Because you can still run on diesel, but you can switch between the two. And so when we couldn't find oil at the restaurant nearby, we would end up having to fill up on diesel. Is it even cheaper? You you get it for free from restaurants. And you filter it because they use it to cook and then they throw it out or have somebody come and pick it up. So we'd show up as a bunch of weirdos and say, hey, we want your oil. And they'd laugh at us and look yeah. at us weird. And, and then you'd be like, no, seriously. <laughs> seriously, we'll pull up behind your place and pump it out of your tank. And they'd be like, all right. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love yeah. this. I really yeah. want to see. I genuinely need to see yeah. this now. Yeah. It's. I think it was on Hulu and Netflix at different times. I don't know if it's still up or not, but you can get it around on 
Amazon probably. You did that after you got back from Cuba. Yeah. That was like a college thesis project. Okay. I'm intrigued as to the nature of being in somewhere so now, I guess. It's a little different now because everyone is now going to Cuba to visit. But at the time, it was sort of uh, a, a untapped world of exploration because you can only be there on a student visa, right? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, at the time, it was very hard to legally travel to Cuba. Right. And I was able to go through the college that I went to called Hampshire College, and yes. they had a study abroad program in Cuba specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went actually two different semesters there, fall semester, sophomore and junior year of college. And yeah, it was it was a very different time down there when I was studying than than what it is now. There's been a huge influx of tourism. It's opened up so much to the U.S. because of Obama's changes in policy. So at that time, hardly anybody spoke English. I barely spoke Spanish. Uh, we were a group of ten or twelve students living in different houses in the Vedado neighborhood of Havana, and uh, and figuring it all out. And everybody had their own independent project that they worked on that was arts related. And, uh, uh, yeah, what else can I say? I mean, it's changed a lot. What, how do you feel about the change? It's hard to talk about it in uh, broad terms. I think it's only you have to approach things in Cuba in general. I would say you have to approach things about specific things. You can't say, oh, it's good or bad. You say, oh, well, what about the healthcare system or what about schools or what about uh, food? You, you can't. I think you have to talk specific. But overall, I think change is important and needed, and it has to be done, right? You said your father was a documentarian. Uh, I, I am familiar with, with uh, Toby Carey's um, work in that he has always been involved in videography and, and documentaries um, from even when I was growing up. Um, I must admit, though, I'm not certain as to how far his documentaries brought him. Was he traveling a lot when you were younger? No, not a lot. I mean, we he's done... Uh, films about a lot of local history, and so that kept him fairly close to sure. Woodstock. Lots of Catskill and Hudson Valley history. Uh, one of the most well-known docs he's done called Deep Waters, all about the Ashokan Reservoir, sure. and uh, he did a a doc on the mascot, uh, Indian mascot, oh, at yeah. the, the public school in the Woodstock area. There was a lot of controversy over changing the mascot to not be a racist stereotype and uh he ended up making a documentary film about that mm-hmm. they didn't um, change it did they they just recently they they, okay. they did literally only just uh within this past uh, uh school cycle i think they so by when he was doing it they had it, it ends on and they're not changing it yeah okay <laughs> but it's <laughs> sort of a losing battle in the film <laughs> wow but it set the stage for these types of changes now yeah so, yeah when you began your quest across the country that experience versus that of being in Cuba, those are totally two different experiences, but the uh, adventure of being across the, of dri- driving across country on vegetable oil versus getting all the vast array of new experiences that you can in Cuba, what, how would, you, would you be able to compare the two? And what lessons did you receive in Cuba that you got while traveling across the country? Well, I would say that in my experience in making any kind of documentary film, you start out with one idea of a film you want to make and you end up making a totally different film. Especially if it's something like those two which were happening in the moment. They weren't history-based. So 
we said, we're going to get a car, we're going to convert it to run a vegetable, and we're going to drive across the country and make a film, and we're going to see what happens. <laughs> and along the way, we figured that we interviewed tons of people. We were connected to, I don't know, a bunch of well-known people like Morgan Freeman, who happened to be opening a biodiesel plant in Mississippi, where he's from, and uh, Tommy Chong, who you know, wanted to talk about alternative lifestyles, and Yoko Ono, and uh, and Noam Chomsky did an interview with us, so we inco could incorporate all these political aspects to what started out as a road trip. And we knew it, we wanted to be political because at the time we were invading Iraq for oil, and this was t there was talk of green energy and what we're going to do to supply the needs of the country and the world. And this was one piece in that new uh, vision of how to redefine what it is to produce energy. You made a documentary called Welcome to Leaf. Um, Sundial Pictures was uh, the, the main production company. Well, we produced that with uh, the Cinemart, which is another okay. production company who okay. we actually share a space, uh, an editing post-production house in Gowanus with, and uh, the two filmmakers, Michael and Chris, who they were really the driving force. They came to Cinemart. Cinemart came to us, and the, we all decided to make it together. And that, so it's very collaborative. All of these films are collaborative. We're not the company. We're not the producers making them. We're a part of a team, and everybody plays different roles. And, uh, and we and I f we fill different roles in each project depending on what's needed, how much time you can dedicate, budgets, etc. How often does your company reach out to other production companies or is it the other way around regarding ideas that need clearly more financial backing? I think it goes both ways. I think people are always searching for money to make their projects and when we have a good idea we try to find the right partners and other people have good ideas they often reach out to us and you know you put you pull a lot of these things together through crowdsource funding platforms like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, mm -hmm. uh, individual donations, uh, grants, investors, tax credits. So it's in indie film and low-budget filmmaking, you kind of piecemeal these things together in general. Do I remember correctly that Jiro Dreams of Sushi was a Kickstarter project? I don't think Kickstarter was even around then. Welcome to Leith was a Kickstarter project, okay. and we made about 60 grand on it. Amazing. You know, and that was a huge, that allowed the film to move forward. And then we were able to get a deal uh, with Independent Lens, and that helped us get the rest of the way. With the political climate being so erratic as it is, uh, have you been inspired to bring new ideas to the table? Yeah, we have a bunch of <laughs> new things going on that haven't happened yet, so I can't really talk about them. Oh, sure. And But I think everybody is motivated now. And you, when you talk Make to art. people within the film industry, you know, I was at Sundance this January, Everybody was still kind of in shock and kind of figuring out what the next moves were and had a ton of discussions with different filmmakers saying, you know, this is the time we have to do something. What is it? And it's about organizing and it's about creating our own self-sustaining industry that is not reliant on simply philanthropic donations and granting organizations, but actually generates enough of its own revenue to be independent and truly act as journalists, which is what I think the basis for especially a documentarian you know, approach to filmmaking is. It's journalism at its root. Have you ever gone in thinking you had an opinion or belief system or idea, 
and then throughout the process of your documentary changed your views even world views maybe i don't know if i could pull a specific yeah. instance of that that exact thing happening but i would say in every film it's it changes throughout and it changes in the editing room it changes in production and unless you're open to those changes you hit a dead end and i've you i've found that you know the pro the production informs you you inform the production it goes back and forth back and forth and then you're in the editing room and you realize oh you know what this isn't really that crucial anymore we thought the film was about one thing it's really becoming about another you have to remain open to those yeah. i think that flexibility is very important especially in documentary even in, but in scripted narrative you know feature yeah. films as well you have one script and you end up with a it on the films i've worked on we'll start with a script We'll film close to that, and then you edit it, and we rearrange the whole thing half the time. And we cut all these scenes, and we recreate dialogue, and you add in you know, things you record in the studio. So you ch these things change quite often, and I think maybe the master filmmakers are able to really know it from the beginning and get it done, <laughs> but we're still winging it and figuring it out. Do you enjoy the narrative process uh, as much as making a documentary, and how was your first uh, time working on a narrative? Well, I always, st I started out making documentaries, and so it wasn't until Sundial Pictures was, you know, a little more established, and we were we were partnering with some great producers and other production companies that we were even working on scripted narrative films. So uh, that process started much more hands off in the background, and over the years we developed our some of our own scripts and were able to make those and really be the lead producers on you know some of the projects such as. Jack of the Red Hearts and Youth in Oregon. And I like that process, but those those films are it's a big undertaking. There's a lot on the line. You have to coordinate everything. You're talking about huge crews and actors and schedules and if you you can't miss a day, you know, the whole thing gets screwed if you miss a day. <laughs> the whole thing falls apart if it rains on that scene outside, so you have to have backup plans and it's very different from documentary where I like in a documentary, I can go out sometimes alone with a camera and start making it. Yeah. Or a crew of two or three. And you can start and film for two days and then edit something and see what you like, see what you didn't, figure out what the next step of pr in production will be. On a feature, it's a lot more. We have 24 days or 22 days or 18 days. Every second counts. Everything counts. And So at the very essence, it sounds like uh, just... You, Joey Carey with a camera is really the uh, quintessential process you are looking for, just to be able to be out there and capturing something with your camera. Were you always, even with the inspiration of having your father as a documentarian, always out there videotaping, you know, documenting? Not really. I think I helped him a bunch, but um, it wasn't until college that I started uh, paying attention more to myself and what I wanted to be doing and realizing how I could incorporate all these different aspects into film and I didn't really take it seriously until I made that first project in Cuba mm -hmm. um, but you know that was the beginning and since then I've worked as a producer and executive producer on a bunch of different projects and it's a totally different relationship where I'm not the one operating camera I'm not even on set half the time or on location for a doc shoot only Mike and Chris from Welcome to Leith actually went to North Dakota and filmed in the town, and they did the audio and filming themselves and editing themselves. And I was involved more in that post process and giving notes, but you know they were the driving creative forces. And 
Same with Jiro Dreams of Sushi. You know, I wasn't there. It was the director. Yeah. And so I want to return a little bit more to the roots of it where I am doing that, operating camera, up doing audio, you know, and be with a small crew directing, producing, and editing. So it's a return to some of the initial interests that I, I think I had in film. Which are you most comfortable? Which which spot are you most comfortable with on set? If you could be only one. I don't think I life. don't think I could. No. I, yeah, I don't know. It, it all depends on the project. Like, Gotta all, be ambidextrous. Yeah. yeah, you kind of have to do everything on the small in the small films. And you know, I like I've done just audio for other people and help them out. I've done just camera. I've edited things. So it's a it's a variety it's a variety show. You know. You've been someone who has liked to collaborate even from a young age. I mean, when there were ever like music projects, I'm sure there must have been some really nice feeling to be able to come together with others and make something awesome. Yeah. Well, filmmaking is in a lot of ways the ultimate collaborative, creative experience. Definitely. How do you go about that? Like, obviously, you're you're always meeting people and you're de deciding like, wait, is this person okay to collaborate with? And like, you know, things like that. Like, what vibes or how do you base whether you want to work with somebody? I think it's a lot about having getting to know people. And sometimes you get to know people during the process of making a film. Other times you get to know people beforehand and then are lucky enough to work together. Um, we, in, in many ways, when we have a good experience working with a crew on like a feature film, for example, where it's a big crew and everybody is so intertwined and one, you know, when it works really well, you want to work with the same people. You want to bring everybody back together because you start off from a much better point when you're going in as opposed to figuring it all out and having to get to know each other. So I like to, I like to work with the same people, but not everybody's available. Not every project uh, calls for the same skills that somebody has and somebody may not. So a lot of it is getting references, talking to friends, colleagues, and, and meeting with people and seeing what that vibe is. How has growing up in Woodstock shaped you as a creative individual? Growing up in Woodstock in general and just with my family, it always felt like this was something that was realistic to do, where I think as a lot of places, you wouldn't feel that you could be an artist or a photographer or a filmmaker or a musician and do it successfully. But Woodstock kind of surrounded by a lot of creative people who have figured out ways to both make their art and pay the bills. Were there friends that you had growing up that inspired you to go down this path, not just family? Say Elon. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> just I, kidding. <laughs> I mean, I know I got some influence. It, it all but... comes back to the bus rides to school in elementary school, I got to say. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Brooks Rocco couldn't join us, but we'll get to those clips later. Uh, but yeah, but tell us, like, you know, I mean, in high school when you, when you were clearly I mean, becoming more impressionable. I mean, everybody was very supportive of creative ideas. And, like, I would have fun with friends and make different short films and take photos and you know help my dad out and whatever else and I don't know if that's that different from a lot of people's experiences growing up which is having fun and experimenting but I do think that the general Woodstock community is very open and supportive of any kinds of expression and art and that allows people to pursue it in a more serious fashion whereas other communities may be pressuring somebody to, you know, get into a more stable economic job opportunity right. or whatever it is. Where Woodstock is pretty, oh, you know, do what you feel, do what you figure <laughs> it out. You're, you know, 
it, it's interesting. Not well, actually, no, it's not surprising. Rather to that effect, that uh, you ended up in Hampshire. I know that Hampshire, uh, like my school, Poughkeepsie Day School, where I went to high school, was uh, really promoting the whole free thinking, creating your own major, etc. Really thriving on the possibilities of control of your destiny. Yeah, Hampshire was great for me. It allowed me to pursue a whole bunch of different areas of study early on and then decide what kind of a final project I wanted to do. It's very independent based, so I didn't I worked every student works with a committee of uh two or three professors who help guide them along the way, but it falls on your back to make sure that you're making progress and fulfilling your commitments and I'm pretty self-motivated person. I think that structure worked really well for me. I don't think it works that well for everyone, but it was Hampshire was great for, for me. Was there a film that inspired you? One one or two films that really, Let's like, see. that you remember that really, like, stu- stuck with you? Uh, there's a film by Eugene Jarecki called Why We Fight, which I think is a very powerful film, and, at, and I haven't seen it for years. So I'm not sure how it holds up now, yeah. but probably 10 years ago now even, maybe maybe a little less. I saw that film and I thought, oh, this is great. I want to do this. I guess this is a good uh, question for the table here. How often do we need to see a film that we really like in order to reappreciate it? It seems like you've seen a film, okay, I've seen it, but then like you know, years will pass and you haven't seen it, and then you realize, maybe I should see this again. Should I see it again? Do I need to see this again? How relevant is it that I have to see this film again in order to be able to be a part of a conversation? Well, it's nice to watch a film and realize that it was made so long ago and still feels relevant and contemporary. And a lot of films that talk about you know, the eternal questions still are relevant and still do that and, and can affect you in an emotional way that a, a film about something that's happening at the moment it's made and then it's passed and it becomes history loses some of that. So I don't and that you're talking to someone who doesn't even watch a lot of films. <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of bad. I should. should. Yeah. It's kind of like I'm research. with you, brother. I'm with you. And uh, and I don't watch a lot of films twice. Yeah. And and I should. But hey, you know, it's hard when you're working in front of a screen all day and doing with all thinking about film and making movies all the time to then want to watch something that holds a lot of weight and is heavy or very intense subject matter. I often go home and I just want to like relax and chill. Yeah. Have you? Can you remember something recently that you've watched that you felt afterwards like, oh my god, I need to, I need to un like I need to watch something to counteract that, or or well, it's just too heavy. Like, honestly, like <laughs> we went and saw Logan in theaters. Okay. And it is a powerful movie and like really intense and emotional, and you wouldn't necessarily think so because it's, I don't. I, yeah, you got a, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart. Say no more. I mean, it, they killed it. I loved it. It was awesome. And so afterwards, we sort of, uh, my wife and I went to see it, and we looked at it, and we're like, whoa, that wasn't exactly the action-packed thriller that we thought it was going to be. <laughs> it was like an emotional roller coaster, and we survived. Let's go have a beer at the bar. So that's one you don't want to see again, and it's interesting because they also, both Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman said that they don't want to do another one again. Like, mm. you know that, right? That they, I actually didn't. Oh, they they said that's it. There's there's no other superhero movie that that will explore Wolverine uh, the way They've this explored Wolverine three times. Yeah, so I they're like, we're, we're that's what they said. They said we're done. Like this is it. This is the last one. So it is interesting that that's the one where you're like, I don't need to see that again. <laughs> that was it's big. Also it was like powerful. The most recent movie that I saw yeah. in theaters. So what about you, Catherine? Uh, the the for me the question that I asked would be twelve. Uh, 
12 years a boy. I keep saying that, but it's not. 12 years a slave? No, it's boyhood. <laughs> it's boyhood. And this I've is been... like a hidden fences moment. Yes, yeah. yes it's totally hidden 12 fences. 12 years of boyhood. That is exactly how long boyhood lasts for. <laughs> yes. In theory. And and it's not like I mean, yes, it's years apart, but still not that many. <laughs> I, actually I appreciated boyhood too. It takes twelve years to make. Yeah. For you, Joey, what's the longest amount of time it's ever taken you to work on any film in any capacity? Well, there's a film that we are finishing hopefully this year that's <laughs> been five years already. Wow. Five years. Yeah. It's classic documentary stuff. You set out, you want to make something, you have no money, you just start making it, and then you're stuck because you have to finish it. Yeah. And you have to figure out the money, and you have to figure out the time and energy, and you partner with people who also are balancing jobs with the project, and, and it takes a long time. And if only someone would come along and just like give us a couple hundred thousand dollars, we'd yeah. be done. That's... Time for a pitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where were you in your head five years ago? I think I had more willingness to start a project that didn't have any financing behind it mm -hmm. whereas now i don't want to sign on to a project that doesn't have money to finish it or or at least get far enough along that we'll have something together that we can use to raise the remainder because it's like digging a hole with no way out and you need you need money to make these things it's hard can you say what it's about or no yeah yeah this is a film about organizing and it fo <laughs> and it focuses on the founder of the organization acorn Wade Rathke oh, wow. okay. and covers history of Acorn and present day work that's going on around the country and around the world. And it's more timely than ever right now as organizing is on the tip of everyone's tongue. And it can be used as an organizing tool to bring people together, to engage local community, uh, local community groups, and, uh, uh, and help give people somewhat of a guideline about how to organize their communities. So we're, try we're close to finishing. We need to finish this. And we want to launch, launch a huge grassroots screening campaign and find the right traditional distributor to help put it out. A lot of it is looking, a lot of that timeline is looking towards the midterm elections and seeing if we can have an, have an effect on those. The last time I even heard that name was, I think, when Obama first got elected, right? Or no? He was in the news a bunch. I mean, it's been, it, the organization is, no longer exists. It went bankrupt. They were under attack and and had a lot of internal struggles and declared bankruptcy. And there have since been established a lot more regional groups that are run and, and not necessarily run by, but have a lot of former ACORN organizers. Uh, re, a lot of former ACORN organizers have gone on to work in more regional and local uh, groups and started new organizations to continue the same type of work. But there's no national ACORN group anymore. There is an international ACORN group that's run with Wade as the chief organizer, and they operate in almost 20 countries around the world now. And that has continued to go on, but ACORN in the U.S. no longer exists. So part of what I think our goal is to not rebuild ACORN per se, but in order to build real power in the country, you need to have the ability to launch national campaigns and at least try to help coordinate the different groups around the country so that people are working together yeah. uh, when it makes sense. When we come back, uh, we got to dive into some younger, I was going to say older, old, old clips, but it's of younger Joey Carey. Old clips of young uh -oh. Joe. <laughs> Get ready. This is Lost from Rewind on Radio Free Brooklyn.
Extraordinaire is our guest here in the studio, and we're also with Catherine Dunn, aka Face Girl, from Art Star Scene Radio, because she loves me, and she always likes to come and help out whenever she can. It's true. I don't. I don't really hang out in the studio waiting. I. I just. I was stalking your Facebook. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. It, one of the things that comes about with uh, doing this show is is that I, I end up doing a show that is involved with uh, my own audio, and as episodes go forward, I like to try and involve people and their own stuff but it falls on me and that's cool because i've got plenty of stuff and (laughs) luckily we have clips that have not yet even been heard on any iteration of lost around this one or the last one and joey you and i have been in touch for quite a while because when i first had this idea i think i even emailed you originally the clips yes and then just left it at that (laughs) (laughs) no you said Hey, we have some old clips from the school bus in elementary school. Check them out. Can we use them? Yes. And we of, never did, though. And of course I said yes, and that was that. And then we bumped into each other on the street, and you're like, hey, we should do this. Yes. Like, Let me know. It's I, e- it was easy like that. I love that you said yes and showed up. Like, that is so not L.A. Like, he didn't even New York it out. I definitely live in New York. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, like, New York, at least he would have texted last minute how he can't make it. But you showed up. I don't know. You are clearly not from around here. Uh (laughs) And I mean that in a good way. (laughs) The bus ride that we took, we would go up my, we would go down this windy road, Ohio Mountain Road. The windiest road you've ever been on. Ever. It is, it is a beautiful view of the Ashokan Reservoir, of which we mentioned before. And then you would come down past a church. You'd make a right, and then you would go towards the Glenford neighborhood. Could you explain, what, what is, is this like a hamlet of Woodstock or something? Glenford is technically in Hurley, but it is in the Woodstock Elementary School District. And it's kind of like the forgotten little enclave over on the side of Route 28. Sure. No, there's a post office. That's there is, all. There is. And it's, it's all there is. It's literally just on the other side of Ohio Mountain. So to go into the town of the center of town, you either go over the mountain on that windy road or you go around it on Maverick Road. And we were lucky enough that our bus route did both. <laughs> yes, it did. So in the morning would be one way and then the afternoon would be the other. Right, uh, that is or, correct. But something along those lines. Right? It, w- it would come down, and then it would go over to Maverick Road because the route there were some kids that we picked mm-hmm. up on that on that road as well, and then we'd come around to uh, three seventy five for this is all Woodstock <laughs> trivia that makes no difference to anybody else except for us. But but oh, yeah. well, tell but, me about the maps. <laughs> tell me about the maps. That house that you lived in was that the house the only house you ever lived in, or did your parents move there? Well, my parents before lived... from somewhere else rather. I always lived in that house, and it, over the years it has grown. But my parents and family lived in Woodstock for a long time, since 1969. And oh, wow. Had a, they had a whole commune and a school they started in Willow and did all kinds of Woodstock stuff. 
classic Woodstock. You should see the photos from back then. Your parents were not originally from Woodstock themselves, but they moved there at the yeah. time that everybody else was moving. 69, but Did they just to go them, to the concert, stay, no, no. and not leave? According to them, they moved to Woodstock before the concert, okay. and they didn't even know it was happening. Uh-huh. They just sure. They just said- They were cool before it was cool. This was the place where everybody was hanging, and, <laughs> and it was people like us, because they'd been yeah. living for a year- before then in New Hampshire with the same people in their own little commune there, but they were the only weirdos around. So they said, Woodstock is where the other weirdos are. We yeah. better go there, and they were able to figure it out. So after years of living in commune life, a lot of family and very close family friends moved to different parts of the Woodstock area, and so that's when my parents ended up moving into the house that I grew up in and they still live in. That's and my aunt beautiful. and uncle still live in the house that was the commune. So, wow. Yeah. Really? So you really have truly socialist uh, roots. Abby Hoffman yippies. Yes. No more fucking around. Let's listen to the first clip. Let's have an interview on Joey Perry and ask him who, who, what I felt like when he was watching the Super Bowl. Huh? You were watching the Super Bowl. How did you feel when the first Oh, man, did you see that cool. game? 49-26. And you were uh, evidently involved in watching the Super Bowl every year. Apparently so. I don't remember it that well. Well, that one was, I don't remember who the teams were other than the 49ers because I guess that was. It wasn't the Lions, the Bengals, and the Bears. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> when I talk, Jeff. you listen. I love that. Shout out to Brooks Rocco. <laughs> yep. Actually, I texted him before the recording. I told him that uh, if only he was more free and during the daytime. You can't to... call him in. He, you he, he has an important job. Uh, Where is, he talks and everyone listens. <laughs> or he, he uh, mines for uh, data and everybody watches. <laughs> hey, Siri, you're a creep. No, she nope. usually... no, no, she's giving you the same. Hey, silent Alexa, you. turn lights off. Hey, Siri, I don't understand. Turn lights <laughs> off. 
All right, whatever. <laughs> Normally she's listening. I that that was the point that I wanted. I heard. To make, I heard it. Like she's creeping. I don't know what the obsession that Brooks had with interviewing you, but it comes up in the next two clips. So let's take a listen to that. Any 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 closing thoughts on uh, on on Super Bowl talk? Go Giants. Go exactly. Go yeah, for real. <laughs> Fuck the Jets. Hey, remember, when I talk, you listen. This is Brooks. I want to interview someone who you will like very much. His name is Joe Carey. Hi, Joe. Hi, my uncle's name is Jim Carey. Wow, that we didn't know that. Isn't that pretty cool? That sucks. But I, I didn't say that. Here. Uh, well, unless he said something good about me, whatever he said is a lie. Joey sucks. Jim Carrey is not his friend. Jim Carrey is really your uncle? Yes. Ha ha! You're funny. It's true. Isn't he funny? I'm going to have a different guest because he doesn't seem to have anything good. Joe didn't have anything intelligent to say. I'm going to interview someone else. Mr. Man! Hi, Mr. Man! Mr. Man can't talk, so I'm going to interpret what he's saying. So, Mr. Man, do you like America? He says, yes. Where were you born? He says, in La La Land. What's it like in La La Land? He just looked at me with a funny little face. Mr. Man, are you a dork? He said, yes. Really? He said, yes. Wow. We didn't know that. This has been fun, but since Mr. Man can't talk, I'm going to interview another person. His name is... Hi, I'm the one who says my uncle's Jim Carrey, and he is. And my aunt is also Mariah Carey. Whoa, you suck. <laughs> They're pretty cool. All right. Wow, there's a lot going on there. Wow. In- including like, like evidently what was, I was recording over, which was just some like a random radio song. <laughs> That's always the best too when you are recording and all of a sudden you find yourself hearing what was originally on the tape. What was? What that's was? A, that's was. a lost art form now because nobody's nobody records on tapes. All uh, digital. Yeah. Come on. That the whole point of what we're doing here is to find those who did. Jim Carrey is still my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Mariah Carey is still my aunt. And I don't care what you say. What was that? The first thing that came into your head is like it's just because like it was riffing off what Brooks was doing. I think so, and that must be around the time when like Ace Ventura and The Mask and all these big Jim Carrey movies were coming out. So all the kids like they all watched those, and it's just being dumb on the bus, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's like. Pretty low-brow comedy there. Did people say that about you, though? Like, no. nobody... Okay, that was nobody your own yet. thing. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> I probably never said that again, either. <laughs> that's, that's the one so and funny. only time. That's, that's what's so funny, is, is that... Joe... Forever encapsulated yeah. in this moment. It gave uh, Brooks an opportunity to just, like, keep on with this trope, and Joey just sort of, like, ran with it the entire time. <laughs> it was uh, sort of... Uh, Foreshadowing for collaboration and just say and yeah yeah improv yeah exactly improv totally did you do it did you did you ever study improv at all no unofficially just you get it you know it you get it you work with actors you know it you get it you see it do you encourage improv I like improv a lot you don't 
necessarily need it to be scripted. You're happy to let the actors formulate around. I mean, I've never directed a like scripted film like that, but if I were, I think I would want it to be more loose on set and allow for scenes to run on and for actors to improv more. Sometimes directors have done that in certain scenes that I've worked on, and I tend to like it. Would you ever direct Jim Carrey? Uh, yeah, totally. Your uncle, my uncle Jim. You, you would you direct Uncle Jim? Uncle Jimmy, and you would. Uh, I mean, he's he's an improv guy. I mean, he's a sketch and improv guy. So who's that... currently working on a movie about LSD? What? what? Yeah, mind blown. Chew on that, guys. This is where we put the. Brr, 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 brr. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. Uh, so wait, then um, the films that you've worked on. I mean, I guess there is a little bit of comedy that you've worked on. Do you enjoy working on oh, comedy? I love comedy. We worked. There Youth was, in Oregon is Youth in Oregon. It's a dark comedy. It gets pretty dark by the end. Uh, Obvious Child, another another comedy. Jenny Slate, lover. And it was so fun because sometimes all the entire crew is standing around trying to be silent and not laugh and all of a sudden the scene ends and the director says cut and everybody bursts out laughing and it changed it really made for a fun experience on set have you ever had like a funny experience on set during those quiet moments i'm sure uh i know i have one let's hear yours but i want to hear yours so i'll give you time to think of one yeah. So uh, my friend texted me, and, and she was like on the treadmill, and she's like, what do you do when you have to fart? And I'm like, oh, I know. You just blame it on the guy next to you. I'm joking at this point. But I'm like, now I want that to happen. I really want someone to fart when they yell rolling. Um, and, uh, and it did. And I peeked my head up. We were, we were in like an office, and I peeked my head up like a little gopher, and it was older Pete from Pete and Pete. So like of all the people for it to be, it was like him, and he had just told me that he was like vegan or vegetarian. So I now know that those are animal-free farts, too. And we can all hear them. And he does, in a total Pete and Pete kind of way, he blames it on the guy next to him. And the guy's like, no, uh with his face. Because you can't say anything. Then he blames it on the other guy. And the other guy goes, oh, hell no. So then in, like, full Pete on Pete fashion, he goes like this with, like, both hands, points at both of them, and shrugs. Mm. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? It was me. <laughs> and that was perfect. That was my favorite. We're rolling. Don't make a sound moment let's take a listen to this third clip i also think your your friend should talk to billy eichner about stealing his whole bit just saying oh he was doing it before billy eichner was doing it uh, well it's a very billy eichner vibe billy, you're, getting that vibe strong you're never gonna listen to this billy but you know that <laughs> you're on notice <laughs> before i talk you listen remember guys when i talk you listen hi i'm gonna have a very very special guest for you today on i talk you listen and that guest is Jim, Jim Carrey's nephew! Hi, Jim Carrey's nephew! Hi! Jim Carrey's nephew's a total dork, so don't mind him. So, I'm cool. He's a dork! Now, I have a couple questions for you. Do you like your, uh, uncle? Oh, uh, yeah, he's cool. What's your favorite movie of his? Probably. Probably. The. Mask? Dumb and Dumber, um, um, uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, or um, Batman Forever. Which one? Which one? The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and Ace Ventura. What about Batman Forever? Oh, I didn't see that yet. Stupid! You should be on the set like every day. Uh, what? No, I'm not. You're, you're poopy. Ooh, I'm scared. 
I know you are. Okay, ask me another question now. Okay, what do you think you classify yourself? A dork, a wuss, or an idiot? A poopy. That's not one of the choices? Uh, an idiotic poopy. That's not one of the choices either. A uh, dorky. That's not a choice. A dork. Okay, there you have it. He's a dork. Okay, here comes Bruce. I stopped this interview. I'll be right back. All right, back after Bruce talking about the seats. I'm still here with Jim Carrey's nephew, right? Yeah. He talks slowly. That's because he's a dork. I know. I'm a poopy also. That's not one of my choices. I know, but I said I was a dork and a poopy. Okay, that makes sense. He's a dorky. That was Jim Carrey's uh, sister. Now, that was really Jim Carrey's stupid piece of shit. His pet. I'm her sister. No, he's not. He's his piece of shit. He must be his piece of shit. Now, what's your closing comment? Uh, Jim Carrey, cool. Okay, there you have it. And remember, when I talk, you listen. Bye. Did I talk? You listen. Oh, goodness. Wow. wow. Quality. Abusive. <laughs> yes. Quality. Yes. I've improved my interviewing skills since then. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, well, you, yeah. you were being interviewed. That, that you were yes, the, as, an in, as an interviewee. Yeah, yeah, I think so. This one's going, I think this interview is going better than that one. Uh, Poopy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I'm, gr- I'm grateful <laughs> for a dork. <laughs> Would you consider yourself a dork, a nerd, or a geek? Looking back at... at I'll know, stick it, with dork. Poopy. He's a, <laughs> a poopy dork. I, I considered myself a dork as well. Um, I don't know about a poopy dork, but... Because that, that's a whole other level. That's, where that's coming from. Improv, baby. Know. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the first it. three words. I mean, you basically said that you liked all the films that Brooks listed off, but then forgot the fourth one. And you're like, oh, I wasn't on the set for that. <laughs> Well, what I love about that is this is from a time when people would see everything that that person they liked was in. That doesn't exist anymore. Like, now you can have an actor that you are, are obsessed with or whatever, like, and you have no idea that they're in this dramatic or role. Or films, a, exactly. Yeah, like, all that. Scream banked on that when they put Drew Barrymore in that one scene. Yeah. You know, and, like, I think Waxworks or whatever, the the one that knew people wanted to watch Paris Hilton die. Like, that's what they banked on. There's House of Wax. Right. Right? And they're like, watch Paris Hilton die. It's like, well, America unites in hating her. Let's watch her die. Like, that was, like, there was that, like, that that weird sort of, I don't think we have that. You've made two very interesting points, one of which is that we have an obsession with seeing uh, idols fall, mm. always, you know, or in, in struggle, because we like to see chaos. I think there's an obsession with Some chaos that we have. people see the world burn. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was Batman uh, Forever. By yeah. Me. The Riddler was a fantastic uh, role. One of my favorite Jim Carrey roles, for sure. Mm-hmm. Before the entire Joel Schumacher machine fell all the fuck apart by Batman and Robin. And that's with Mr. Freeze, right? Chill out. Chill out. <laughs> <laughs> but, so bad. But the other point that you made was being into an actor or an actress and then finding out all these films that you have to catch up on or something. The video store was all about... Oh. Would they organize by actor? No, but you would just, you'd be finding these films that you never heard of, and then next thing you know, you're seeing a random indie film with Steve Buscemi. Uh, (laughs) That would be Trees Trees Lounge, which also stirred, it stirred, it starred one of the Baldwins. I believe it was uh, Danny Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, But Steve Buscemi was in that, and I had seen him in Fargo, and I was like, well, what is this film? So, you know, it's like the Tribeca Film Festival does the same thing. You see these films that star 
these really amazing actors, and then you realize, oh, my God, they're in this too. Uh, to another point, you've had films, Joey, that have appeared on the film festival circuit. I believe Youth in Oregon, which starred Billy Crudup and uh, Frank Langella, made its debut on a film festival, yes? Yeah, it premiered at Tribeca last year. Awesome. Or was it last year? Two years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. A and while ago. After working at Tribeca Film Festival myself a few seasons in a row a while back, I was really intrigued by just like how many films are out there that are starring all these actors that you know of. And then they may not get distributed, or they do, but they just you know, get, it's very, very small distribution. So they just sort of get shelved, and you never hear about them ever again. And now that there's no video stores, where are they going to go? Yeah, they all end up eventually, not all, most end up eventually on iTunes, and then no one knows that they're up there and has never heard of them, and they never get seen. But they're on iTunes if you want to search for it and someone tells you about it. It's very tricky. There's so much quality content being produced now that there's not really enough time in anyone's life to see all the good films coming out. There's not enough space at all the film festivals to program all the good films. So you end up having a ton of films that get made that should see the light of day and should should have a real audience that they could find, but nobody ever hears of them or sees them. It's unfortunate. There was an article that came out today or yesterday about Netflix not marketing all of their films as well as they should. They market only a select few of the original Netflix yeah. originals that they that they do. And I, I see that. And you know, then nobody knows to go see all the other films on Netflix. Indie films don't have big budgets, don't have marketing P and A budgets, any of that stuff. So, yeah, there uh, there are ways that that could be improved for sure. I don't know if there's really a total solution because. There are so many people making so many movies, and there's just not enough space and enough enough time. You can only give uh, front page placement to a certain number of films. It's hard. So obviously, you have a lot of ideas, right? And some of them Tons get made, and then some of them don't. What What makes you decide to go that next step with something? Like you've come up with it, you're passionate about it. What makes you follow through and then involve people, and then? even five years later, like go back and then continue until it's done? What gives you that drive also? Second question. I mean, I think for me personally, the films, and it's not just films, it's also TV series, it's also short form content, whatever it is, it has to have some sort of meaning outside of the film, the visual, the film world. It has to have something that translates into education or um, raising awareness or can be used by groups who are um, lobbying for change, whatever it is, organizing for change. That, to me, is what makes me want to work on something. If you're going to commit so much time to a project like that, for me to want to do that now and sign on to something new, it really has to matter. And it has to be with the right partners. Like It has to be with people who I want to work with and want to spend two to three years collaborating with because it's, a, it's hard and creative decisions and you know business decisions and if you don't have a strong enough relationship with somebody, those things can ruin that relationship that you do have. And you have to be creatively on the same page. It's, it's hard. It's, it's a hard process. But, so you have to really care about the work that you're doing. It's a privilege to be able to have that, uh, that platform and to have you here in the studio to talk about it. It's inspiring to be as an artist to work on my own stuff and never, ever, ever let go. Well, I appreciate coming out very much, and I would say I'm much more interested in the old audio than anything else I'm working on right now. Yeah? Poopy? Poopy. 
Catherine. Come on. Indescribable poopy, wasn't Come it? <laughs> Indescribable poopy would be uh, I'll I, give it. I mean, I want to hear the rest poopy. of those tapes. There's a, a Growing Up in Woodstock audio documentary right there. <laughs> talk, 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 yeah, talk, talk to your dad. I'm happy to, to collaborate with you guys. Local about history. He's the guy. Yeah. Come on. He's the guy. Where could folks learn more about uh, what you got coming up? You can go to our website, sundialpictures.com. That's the main place. We have a bunch of films on there. You can check it out. But we're just doing things bit by bit. And uh, a, 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 any social media <laughs> uh, otherwise that you have to plug? or is Yeah, that... there's stuff on Facebook and whatever else. But we're actually pretty bad at social media. We're trying to step our game up so that people actually want to go step, and follow us step and your game like up, sir. this page. But it's sort of <laughs> it's hard enough for me to keep like one of my own pages any interesting at all. Like, how am I going to run all these other? Plus, every film has its own thing. It's it's a saturated. It's a mess. We're a mess. <laughs> We're all a mess. Dorks. We're all I'm a oh, huge bunch dork. of bunch of huge dork poopy mess. <laughs> Jim <laughs> Jim <laughs> Carrey. I'm going to call Jim my uncle. You should. He's going to hook it up. Hopefully you'll get it. I imagine. I hope Mariah answers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Please come back again soon again, Joey. We're always happy to have you on to chat and uh, let you get a chance to hear more of these sounds. Joey Carey here on Lost and Rewound. Thank you very much. And that's our show. That'll do it for this week. Thanks again to you, Catherine, for helping me out this week. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you so much for having me on. I love coming in. If you want to check out Catherine, she's on every Saturday at 7 p.m. with Face Boy uh, right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. The show is uh, Art Star Scene Radio or ASS. ASS. <laughs> Radio Free Brooklyn slash ASS. And you know where to find us all over the webs. This is, uh, you know, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the Dumblers. We're on Audio Boom and SoundCloud. And then we uh, will be here next week at 3 p.m. And maybe the voice of God will join me again. But in the meantime, thanks again for being here and have a lovely rest of your week. This is Lost and Rewound. Radio free!